Hello and welcome to The Edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, how worried should we be about ransomware? Plus, why are Italians protesting about their green passes? And finally, is it harder to be a good Samaritan in the modern world? First up, in the Spectator's cover story this week, Kieran Martin, the former head of the National Cybersecurity Centre, looks at the issue of ransomware attackers, who are the new pirates of the world. In the piece, Kieran takes us through the recent history of this online extortion trend and asks how best to combat it. He joins me now along with Tommy DeVos, who used to work as a hacker and now works as an ethical hacker. Kieran, you write our cover story this week on the ever-present and growing danger of ransomware. For those who might just be hearing this term for the first time, what exactly is ransomware? It's extortion by electronic means. So you get extorted in two ways, often at the same time. One is the malicious code malware uh, deployed on the network locks you out of the network, so you just can't use it. So, for example, as featured in the piece when the Harris Federation, which runs 50 of London's schools, got ransomware, it had the impacts that the schools couldn't pay bills, but also some of the schools' doors wouldn't even open because they were electronic, they were internet controlled. So that's one um, impact. And they say, unless you pay us X million, X hundred thousand in cryptocurrency, whatever it is, you won't get back into your network. Uh, The second thing that they will do is say, here's some sensitive data that we've stolen. And if you don't pay, we will publish it. So it's digital extortion. And your piece highlights obviously lots of different cases, but you you seem to be saying it's getting worse. Why exactly is it getting worse? Well, I think if you sort of... Um, There's a shortage of data because not for a number of reasons, but one of the main ones is that victims don't have to report it. But I think anecdotally it started to pick up close to exponentially about two years ago because criminals realised how lucrative it is. So I think cybersecurity experts, people I was in government at the time, the National Cybersecurity Centre, people like me and the private sector, um, cybersecurity industry started to get worried about it, more and more worried about it about two years ago. But what's happened this year is that there's been a certain recklessness um, by the criminals. And so instead of just extorting money in private from corporate executives, which is criminal and damaging, but largely invisible, we've seen impacts such as fuel shortages in the US because a pipeline had to be shut down. We've seen the first ever targeted attack on an entire national healthcare system. So you've seen operations cancelled in Ireland, maternity care services devastated for months in Ireland. This week we've seen Italy's vaccination booking programme attacked, school disruption in England, um, school disruption in New Zealand, food distribution disruption in Sweden, etc, etc. So really dangerous real world impacts. That's the new thing in 2021. Tommy, you're now an ethical hacker, but I, I believe I'm right in saying that you started off when you were 10 doing things that perhaps weren't quite so ethical. Can you tell us how you got into hacking and then also how you moved into doing ethical hacking? Uh, sure. Originally, I got into hacking when I was a kid, nine or 10 years old. I joined the wrong IRC chat room. It was owned by a hacker. I thought what he was doing in that room was just the coolest thing in the world to a young kid. And I wanted to be able to do it. So I bothered him every day after school for about six months until he agreed to start teaching me. And once he did, it just kind of blossomed from there. And I spent almost two decades as a malicious hacker, 
and was sent to federal prison here in the U.S. Uh, several times as a result of the illegal hacks that I had performed. And uh, I transitioned to being a what we call a white hat or a good hacker in 2016, thanks to a company called HackerOne that uh, created or is the big platform when it comes to something called bug bounties. And that's where companies pay white hat hackers to break into their systems and discover weaknesses and vulnerabilities in their systems, report them to them. And as a thank you, once they fix them, they pay us a reward that is called a bounty. Right now, my biggest targets are the US government and military. Our president over the last couple of years have signed executive orders that mandate all federal agencies have vulnerability disclosure programs, and a lot of them in turn are running bug bounty programs privately across various platforms. And uh, Verizon Digital Media, which is the uh, online advertising arm of Verizon, they're a company that they bought a bunch of companies from the 90s tech companies like AOL, Yahoo, CompuServe, Netscape, and they put them all under one umbrella. And they're all companies that I grew up using that I know extremely well. So I've had a lot of success in exploiting their systems to make uh, like Verizon Media Loans paid me almost $2 million since 2018. Karen, when you, your piece, you made the point that a lot of these attacks are coming from Russia. Why is Russia so involved in digital hacking? Russia's always had a basic good skill set in computer Exploit computer network exploitation. But I think the reason why ransomware and criminality has flourished is that the state doesn't really enforce the laws. I mean, you've heard Tommy's tale really honestly about his uh, journey, and it speaks to you know, in the West when people get involved in uh, criminal um, hacking, law enforcement takes it very seriously. So to set up a criminal network and organize, I mean, this is basically a digital organized, a set of digital organized crime networks. Uh, to do that in somewhere like the US or the UK or anywhere in the European Union is a really stupid idea because law enforcement will shut you down. It'll be really hard to hide an operation of that size and scale. Law enforcement will kick down the door, I would reckon, within a month if you tried to do what some of the Russian gangs are doing. Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, the Russian state chooses not to enforce the law against these criminals providing they leave Russians alone. So interestingly, one of the things that's happening at the minute is that some defenders in Western countries are installing Russian language scripts into their keyboards because the way these guys, the way some of their code runs means it won't attack Russian language keyboards because the deal with the state essentially is if you leave Russians and Russian interests alone, we won't come after you. It's unconstitutional for the Russian state to extradite its citizens. So even if we went to Russia with a whole bunch of proof about who was doing what, they wouldn't give us um, the people. So it's a very, very safe and hospitable operating environment for organised crime. And, and what is the West doing to try and counter these attacks? Well, until recently, relatively little. Um, a lot of the focus was on Russian state hacking, which is a different problem, you know, the espionage, disruption and so forth. And that was the focus, understandably so, because it was very dangerous and strategically challenging Russian state hacking, Chinese uh, state hacking. But because ransomware, the consequences of ransomware have gone from just being essentially transfers of money from companies to those quite dangerous social consequences like fuel shortages and school and healthcare disruption that I was, I was talking about. Um, President Biden has now raised it at the top of the agenda when he met President Putin in Geneva earlier this year. It's on the G7 communique. I never thought we'd see the word ransomware in a G7 communique. What I'll be looking for now, though, is things like, for example, 
are they going to crack down on the money laundering aspect of this? Because in a sense, this is all about money. These people have no political agenda. So are we going to see the sort of crackdown on illicit money that we saw in terms of terrorist groups post 9-11? Because that's the sort of thing that we will need to see. So I think, you know, the West has woken up to ransomware at political level in 2021. Pressure is now being applied. Until 2021, there was no incentive on Vladimir Putin and his regime and it's not entirely in Russia, some of it's in other former Soviet republics as well. There was no incentive in any of these leaders to do something about the problem. We're, be- we're at the foothills of beginning to do something about it now. Tommy, from your experience, is is the world of hacking quite nationalistic? I mean, are, are you sort of aware of being a, kind of an American hacker and then there are Russian hackers or is it is it quite sort of global and people kind of keep their keep their nationalities to themselves? To a certain extent, it's definitely nationalistic. Even back when I was a black hat, we would form a lot of groups based on geography as well. Back in 2000, we had something called Project China, where a bunch of U.S. hackers banded together to target Chinese government and military computers in result to uh, the Chinese government basically essentially kidnapping a recognizance flight that flew too close, close to China. Um, they forced the plane to land and kept them hostage for like three weeks or something like that. And we felt we were being patriotic, um, attacking the Chinese in response. And then after September 11th, uh, hackers from all over the world banded together to attack Middle Eastern computer systems in response to the media mentioning that terrorists were using the Internet to communicate and recruit new people. So we would disrupt the Internet for large areas of the Middle East at the same time, thinking we were being patriotic. but to a certain extent, we don't care where people are from as well. Like just because you're a Russian hacker doesn't mean that I'm never going to work with you. I've got several friends that are Russian hackers that aren't bad hackers. They're legal hackers just like I am. But that was that's one of the good things about the internet is the fact that to a certain extent, we don't care where you're from. We don't care your race, nationality, sexual orientation, any of that. We just care about how smart you are, how good of a hacker you are, and what you bring to the table when we're trying to break into a system. Kieran, China isn't really mentioned in your piece, but I mean, is Chinese hacking a big problem as well? Uh, Chinese hacking is a big problem. It is a different problem to the one in the piece. Um, Cyber risk has all sorts of different facets. So Chinese state-sponsored hacking for sort of espionage against governments is a very long-standing and difficult problem. Chinese theft of intellectual property has been a serious problem for getting on for 20 years now. Some Chinese ransomware, but the sort of systematic, organised ransomware criminal threat is mostly from Russia and near Russia. And, And that's what's causing us the great difficulties at the minute. But like any problem, I mean, ransomware was largely ignored at policy level for years and now people are stampeding towards it. We absolutely mustn't lose sight of um, some very serious um, capabilities in China that are doing all sorts of harm on a very, very frequent basis. Tommy, one of the points that Kieran makes in his piece is that the one lesson that we should all know is that you shouldn't pay cyber blackmailers. But we also have a piece sitting alongside it by Tobias Vernon, who who owns two small galleries. He was hacked. He pays the hackers back and he gets his Instagram account back. I mean, what do you think? Should should you pay hackers if, if they demand a ransom? I personally don't think you should pay the hackers, mainly because more often than not, once you pay the hackers, they're not going to give you your data back. They're still going to leak your data. And 
when you do pay the hackers, especially when you're a large corporation and it leaks into the news that you've paid X number of millions of dollars to get access to your data back, that's just going to make people want to do it more. I think that one of the reasons that it's become so prevalent, and as mentioned earlier, so reckless here in 2021 is because there's so much news coverage about large, huge sums of money, millions and millions of dollars being paid to these threat actors. And when you think about people, hackers from countries where the the income, the average income is so low, the thought of getting $5 million US for hacking one single company when you don't really have much to worry about legally is pretty enticing because you don't really have any fear of retribution whatsoever as long as, as was said earlier, you don't, if you're a Russian hacker, if you don't hack a Russian company or citizens, you really have absolutely nothing to worry about. They're not going to do anything to you if you're just hacking the U.S., like a U.S.-based company or a EU-based company. Just finally, I'm going to ask you both for your one piece of advice to listeners who might be feeling a bit nervous about what they can do to protect themselves from from these sorts of ransomware attacks. Kieran, what, what would yours be? The basic most important thing is have good backups. It doesn't protect you against data leakage and extortion, but it um, helps you recover if they try and lock you out of your system and changes the sort of calculation as to whether or not you should pay. If you can permit me a more general one, Lara, the other thing is don't be afraid of under- trying to understand cybersecurity. It isn't rocket science. It's just business risk like financial risk, legal risk, all the things that organizations deal with all the time. No one's going to ask you to be a massive expert in cybersecurity. Just get to understand the basics and take the right steps. Tommy? Uh, The biggest thing people can do is keep their systems updated. When it comes to most ransomware attacks, most of them are done with exploits that are not what we call zero days. They're not unknown flaws that there's no patch available. When a company like Microsoft comes out with a new patch for a critical vulnerability, hackers rush to reverse engineer that patch to find out what the vulnerability was so that they can start exploiting it and they can start spreading their malware campaigns. If you keep your system updated, you're not going to stop 100% of them, but you're going to stop a very large majority of them. Most criminal organizations that are not working for a state government are not using zero days. They're using publicly known vulnerabilities where the co- if the company would have kept their systems or the people would have kept their systems patched and updated, they would have prevented most of the attacks. And also not reusing things like passwords um, across multiple websites. When a website gets compromised and your information gets stolen from it, they're going to get your username and password a lot of times from that website. And people's bad habit of using the same username and password across multiple sites gives hackers additional footholds into other areas of their online lives that can further help them attack the person and end up being able to infect them with malware. Thank you, Karen and Tommy. Next up, following Emmanuel Macron's example, the Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi has announced the introduction of a Green Pass. Draghi's initiative, which comes into effect on the 6th of August, has sparked protests all over Italy. Plenty of Italians aren't happy, and Manfred Minera looks at the recent protests that have been breaking out in Milan, Genova and Rome for this week's Spectator. He joins me now, along with the former WHO scientist Francesco Zambon. 
Manfred, in this week's issue, you write about these green pass protests which are taking place all over Italy at the moment, and, and you've actually been to some of them. Can you start by explaining to listeners what exactly people in Italy are protesting about? Well, I think the people who are more informed are protesting about the... It seems kind of there is a kind of a, <clears throat> a something illogic or a shaky basis to justify these measures <clears throat> in the fact that... Uh, more and more we have reports also from other countries like Iceland and England and now Israel, by the way, just yesterday I, I read on the Jerusalem Post that they're even, although they are fully vaccinated, they are thinking about imposing new lockdowns in September. So, I mean, the shaky, shaky scientific basis is that it seems that uh, unvaccinated people and vaccinated people let the virus circulate at the same uh, speed or at the same rate so there is no much it doesn't seem to one can cannot see the logic of imposing a general vaccination when it this doesn't really bring to herd immunity it's there is maybe a logic to impose it on elderly people because uh, they could fill up the hospital or get seriously ill no that's that's i think that and i think the, the protests are moved by the idea of uh, vaccinating the younger people, which it doesn't seem at the moment that they really need for their safety to be vaccinated. And Francesco, is this something that you've also been aware of, these protests taking place? Yes, of course. I mean, I think this is a very big problem here in Italy at the moment, uh, not only for the Green Pass per se, but also for the high tension that there are all over the country. Basically, Uh, There is a kind of discrimination for people who are not vaccinated. And uh, I think that this is going to have also a retroactive effect uh, in terms of how the government managed COVID response. Now people start being very angry about not only these measures, but also other measures that the government is taking. So um, the main critics to the government is that uh, the central government is like uh, in an ivory tower, totally detached from the, the real ground, what's happening on the ground. There is very high tension, there is lack of trust of institutions. And also, I, I, I should say that uh, I don't think that there is freedom of the press at the moment in Italy. And this is quite, um, for a democratic country, this is quite bad. I would say. Well, Manfred, that's one of the points that you make in your piece because you say that this aggressive media campaign has been launched and La Repubblica, one of the major newspapers, even ran a headline saying, now is the time to hunt down the unvaccinated. Presumably that's inflaming the situation. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, Especially when there was another virologist, as I mentioned, who, who is very, very, who goes all the time on TV, Mr. Burioni who went, went on and said that even that uh, unvaccinated people should be hunting down like rats, which brings bad memory of the 30s. Uh, and then when, when, when he was asked uh, by the journalist, uh, ah, but Mr. Borioni, what we are saying, uh, why, why you don't understand the protest? Well, he said, ah, yes, in the 30s, there were not, when, when the first vaccination campaign got introduced, there was no protest. And it's actually even, his answer even worse than what he mentioned, because... Because, of course, in the 30s, nobody could protest because we were in full fascism. But this uh, campaign, it is very strong, it's going all over the mainstream river, not only Republican, Corriere della Sera, 
and and uh, it's always based on um, on studies which are kind of related to the big pharma company like Pfizer. Uh, just today, I was opening the Correa de la Sera, and there were and there was one virology who was saying, "Ah, yes, we all have to vaccinate it because Pfizer says like this." Or the study promoted by Pfizer, but. Uh, the independent studies, I cannot, uh, should base, uh, should be um, the scientific base, I mean, behind the measures, especially for the young people, like I cannot, uh, I cannot find. Yes, I think uh, that, uh, I think it was yesterday, something very severe happened in Italy, because uh, a director of a museum in Naples basically resigned uh, due to the Green Pass. So uh, before he uh, obeyed to all the rules for COVID in Italy, but with his Green Pass, he said that basically this is a measure, uh, this is a tool to get every person vaccinated. And so uh, he cannot accept that uh, people without a Green Pass cannot enter into the museum. So uh, he says that art should be free and uh, there cannot be discriminated if a person is vaccinated or not. Francesco, one of the points that Manfred makes in his piece is that people are getting particularly irate about the idea of teenagers being vaccinated. From your experience of having worked with the WHO, do you think that's a, a, that's a reasonable worry or do you think people shouldn't be worried about teenagers being vaccinated? No, I think it is a reasonable worry now because, uh, of course, we don't have so much evidence given that this is a new series of vaccine. And, of course, uh, there are many, many parents uh, which are very reluctant to vaccinate uh, their children and uh, adolescents. Um, of course, the point is that uh, those who are not vaccinated can spread the infection, but this is also for those who have vaccines. So uh, people cannot really understand the rationale behind it. And I think the communication campaign is also quite uh, wrong and aggressive. As it was mentioned in the piece by Manfred, uh, the Premier really said that unvaccinated people are bringing death. I mean, this is a, an incredible message. I couldn't hear to my, <laughs> I couldn't believe to my ears when I heard it and when I read it. Instead of trying to understand what are really the reasons behind not being vaccinated, so with speaking with the Novax and opening the dialogue, there is really now a wall between the two kind of parties in Italy, those who have vaccines and those without. Manfred, can you tell us also a little bit about these two philosophers yes. who have entered the debate recently? Because I, I don't think people here may have necessarily heard of them. Yes, yes. Well, well they, 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 I mean, of course, philosophy. I mean, they are the most uh, translated and uh, known philosophers outside of Italy. Uh, Mr. Agamben, he, George Agamben, he took from the start of the uh, pandemic, he, to, he took a, a skeptic uh, and critical position against also lockdown measures and so uh, Mr. Kachari, who is also a politician, <clears throat> a long, uh, with a long career as a politician for the left uh, PD party, former Communist Party, actually surprised everybody. And he, he, he also from his political side, because suddenly he went against the line of the left, which is for uh, actually, <clears throat> which is uh, for vaccinated, even uh, compulsory vaccinated of, of everybody. Of course, they are not doctors, they are not uh, scientists, but um, as we said, I mean, in democracy, I mean, in, uh, in old Athens, uh, where democracy was born, 
uh, it was born in the, in the land of logic and they cultivate logic. They, are, they know what logic means. And, it, and, and uh, in front of illogical measures, they felt the urge to <clears throat> speak. Illogical measures are characteristic of despotic regimes like uh, presently in, uh, in China or uh, in the former Soviet Union, but should not be in uh, democracies, in liberal democracy. And finally, Francesco, in, in Manfred's piece, he talks to Senator Gianluigi Paragon, who tells him that these protests aren't anti-vax. Do you see it that way? Yes, uh, I do. Uh, I think that in these kind of protests, uh, when you see these people on the squares, there are people, not only the Novax people, but also people who have the vaccines. So um, it is the principle which is contested here. And uh, I should say that uh, usually there is the image that Novax people are quite aggressive, both in communication and also in the way they, they try to explain their ideas. But actually now, even people with vaccines are becoming quite aggressive in communication because they say that uh, basically Novax people uh, are using an opportunistic approach. So uh, like uh, those who vaccinated, they made a kind of a sacrifice because they live in a community. So there is a pact between the citizen and the state. So you, ma- you have also some duties towards the state. So uh, according to them, uh, Novax people are not uh, uh, obliging uh, their duties as citizens also. Manfred and Francesco, thank you very much. And finally, most of us know the story of the Good Samaritan, but how easy is it actually to be one? That's the question Cosmo Landersman asks in this week's issue, and he's here to talk about it along with the Reverend Lucy Winkett. Cosmo, in this week's edition of The Spectator, you write about your attempts at being a Good Samaritan. Can you start by telling listeners how they've gone? I started off with great hopes and I've sort of ended up pretty disastrously. I don't think I've had much success, but I'm carrying on my attempts to make it to Good Samaritanhood. Lucy, for list- I'm sure most listeners will know the story of the Good Samaritan, but, but for anyone who doesn't, could you just start by summing up the story of it and the, and the moral implications? I mean, it's a, story, it's a story that Jesus told in the Gospels. And it's about a man who's travelling along quite a deserted road and he gets beaten up quite viciously. We, we sometimes, the translation is robbers, but actually that makes them a bit too pantomime. The, the guy is, is, is left for dead, bleeding by the side of the road. And uh, three people walk past. There's a priest and a Levite. And then the third guy who comes past is somebody who's hated and despised by the community of Jesus' day. And he's the one who helps. So the first two go past because they're too busy, basically, or that they've, they've got other things to do. But the third guy, the one that you wouldn't expect, is the one who stops. And, I mean, there's, I don't know how many morals you could get from that story. There's lots. But one of them, I guess, is that sometimes it's the least expected people who are the most helpful when you're in trouble. Cosmo, you've been trying to be that guy who stops. But as you say in your piece, it, it doesn't seem to be going all that well. What's been the response? Well, first of all, I'd like to know that I'm the least expected person who would do that and sort of would probably, and my youth would have mocked other people that, you know, try to play that role. It it can sound rather sanctimonious and I'm, you know, virtue singling in in a berserk way. What I found is that, let me just give you the origins of this, I just reached a point where I thought 
the people I meet on the street, we all, we all have those encounters with people in bad ways. We have the mental health or poverty. And, you know, what is to be done? In the old days, you had a faith that government or some institution or organization would always take care of these people. And that doesn't seem to me to be what's happening. And I reached the point where I thought, you know, no, I'm not going to just walk by and ignore these people. I don't know exactly what to do, but I thought a good way would be to try and talk to people. I mean, my first attempt was to actually join various uh, charities, and none of them seemed to want me because I, I wasn't qualified or they had too many volunteers. Uh, there were always various reasons. were very disappointed. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to just do it myself. I will walk the streets. I make a promise. I will not walk by anyone in need of help. So when I've had my encounters, I didn't want to do the usual thing of, oh, here's some spare change, mate, and, you know, walk by. I thought, these people have stories that no one is listening to. Why not try and talk? That would be helpful. But I often find that people don't really want to talk. Maybe it's something in my method. Maybe I'm too heavy-handed or too lecturing or something. But I, I always wanted to give them kind of a boost to say, you know what, you can change your life. You can have something better than this. You deserve respect. You, you shouldn't be in this position. That's what I was trying. Lizzie, what would be your advice to someone like Cosmo who wants to help but is perhaps not necessarily getting kind of the reaction that they might be expecting? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I'm really sorry to hear that because I think, um, I mean, certainly charities, big and small, that I know are, are always in need of volunteers. I think maybe you've just had a bit of bad luck, Cosmo. I, I would encourage but I, you to persist. But I feel minded to do so. Yeah, but you have uh, to be quite skilled to get into a lot of charities. You know, <laughs> I have this naive well, idea that, oh, if you know you cared and you were passionate and you had the time, they'll open, welcome you with open arms. No, they won't. They'll say, sorry, you know, do something else. Well, for sure. I mean, sometimes, yeah, for sure. I, there's a, I think that, uh, I mean, a current, a current kind of way of, of thinking about this would be that it's got to be mutual. So, I mean, the way that volunteering works best is when you really properly, you know, you really imagine yourself into the shoes of the other person. And that's not to um, uh, disavow your own personality or your own, um, or your own experience or anything, but you really think yourself into that. So, so you're, you, Cosmo, are sitting on the street and, you know, your thousands of people have come past and a guy comes up to you and starts asking you about your story you know, it depends what mood you're in, frankly. If it's three o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, it's on a Friday and you're, you're pretty exhausted, you didn't have much sleep last night because of the traffic, um, are you going to want to tell your story to that guy? Probably not. So I think it's really great that people who are seem to be in need of help are allowed to be as bad-tempered as the rest of us. Exactly. That's, I don't expect them to drop to their knees with gratitude and say, oh, thank you, oh, great, wonderful, kind man, passing Samaritan. I don't expect that. So, you know, you're eager to help, and I, perhaps I'm a little clumsy at times. Lucy, one of the points that Cosmo makes is that he, as he said, is of, used to give money and food and now tries to offer sort of support and conversation. Is money and food actually a better thing to give to people who are, who are you know, struggling? It's totally individual, is what I would say. And sometimes, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time with people who are either vulnerably housed or precariously housed, I should say, sleeping on people's sofas or indeed sleeping on, on the streets or in hostels. And I, I spend, you know, a, a decent amount of time, as a lot of clergy do, speaking with people. And, I mean, certainly, I've just got one guy who comes to mind, and he says he knows the whole menu of Pret-a-Manger sandwiches. He does not want another sandwich in his life. Uh, what he actually needs is deodorant. And what he really needs, honestly, 
is good underwear that, it, that he can change and he needs a place to wash his clothes. So I think, the, I mean, the, the serious point underneath this is that sometimes you can look at somebody and their need is on the outside, looks to them. Most of us, our need is on the inside. We hide it, you know, we hold conversations that are like this. We're, we're articulate. Or we talk, but, you know, all of us are vulnerable adults, to use the, to use the current parlance. I think the whole, the whole of society is made up of vulnerable adults. So I'm looking at the guy and I think, I know what you need. That's absolutely not the case. And it, it's a question of saying what he actually needs. There's one guy I'm thinking of. I had the most brilliant conversation with him this week about Oliver Cromwell. He was an absolute expert on Oliver Cromwell. And I, I mean, I did history as my first degree. I don't know a lot about most centuries in English history, but I do know about the 17th century. And he, we had the really sophisticated, great fun conversation about the 1630s, about Charles I's execution and the, and the protectorate. That's what, that was great. And I didn't end up with buying him a sandwich or he didn't ask me for anything. We simply had this really great conversation for half an hour on his terms, on his topic. And that, for me, was... Uh, that. I think that possibly was actual help for him that day. I, I wouldn't presume to say that, but I think it was. So fewer sandwiches, Cosmo, and, and maybe more pairs of pants and deodorant. Do you think that's a new new approach that you can I definitely have got adopt? a new... Under, uh, yes, I'm going to try the deodorant uh, and, and underpants, uh, starting with myself first, and then I'm going to pass it along. I suppose, Lizzie, that could backfire. I mean, could that not be seen as sort of slightly insulting if you if you give someone deodorant and underpants? Well, I mean, you don't necessarily approach them with that, you know, indicating that they have a BO problem. No, you don't. But you, but it's I, all I'm saying is that asking the open question genuinely and listening to the answer and then acting on that answer is probably uh, and it's not easy I suppose I'm also saying that's really just not easy to do because you're like those two first guys all of us are like those two first guys in the Good Samaritan story we've got stuff to do and we're walking along a street we've actually got to be somewhere so actually that the wisdom of that gospel story is incredibly multi-layered and very deep they did a great experiment some years ago with people training to be clergy, right, in the United States, and they got them to walk from one side of a hospital to another side of a hospital, and they planted people along the way. One group was told that they were in a hurry and they had to get to the next seminar. The other group was told they had two hours for the, before the next seminar. They planted people along the way. No one who was in a hurry stopped, not one. And a good percentage of the people who had time did stop. So one of the morals of that story, if you like, is not so much about people who are sleeping rough, but it's how much time do you have and what is your attitude towards your day so that you've got enough space in it to have a conversation that's open enough that if the guy says, actually, I need Marks and Spencer's underwear, you've got time to go and get it and you don't just give him a voucher for prep. Cosmo, has, has Lucy encouraged you to keep trying to be a good Samaritan? Lucy has inspired me. Really, I, I'm sincerely, I, I'm going to go go at it in a new way and, and, you know, try to make that effort. You know, it's very easy to be cynical about all of this and just say, because the, I've noticed that the volume of people one encounters, the number of people who come on the tube and say, I need some money for a shelter when obviously they don't, and you know, and you could just shut down. And I don't want to ever get to that place where, you know, where I just say no anymore. I think that's really beautiful because the... You're right that the, the temptation is to become closed hearted because sometimes, you know, I, I try and say to myself, so obviously vicars, you know, live in vicarages. Sometimes somebody knocks on the door, says, can I have a sandwich? And I, I say, of course, I'm going to get you a sandwich. And then there's a kind of list. Well, um, I don't like tuna or please could I have bacon or I want it on granary or whatever it is. 
And there's a little bit, you know, you can kind of think, well, mate, come on, you know. But I, I want to be able to say, you know, if I had my friend around and my friend said that, of course I would get the granary out and I would, you know, I, I would accommodate their request. So it's, it's trying to prize your heart open and keep it open. And that is really difficult in a big city like London, for sure. But it's difficult in life as you get older. But I would rather be taken for a ride by one guy than miss, you know, another guy who really needed it. So, so you, ha- but you just have to, you know, you have to kind of get over yourself sometimes, I think. <laughs> that's, uh, that's certainly something I have to do. Cosmo and Lucy, thank you very much for joining. And that's everything for the edition this week. As ever, if you've liked what you've heard and want to know more about the stories we've touched on, do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive. And of course, please do leave us a review and a star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. I'm Laura Prendergast, and I hope you have a brilliant weekend.